Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you for the opportunity um, to sit under your word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach it. Thank you um, for the opportunity for all of us to just be impacted by you and by your truth and by who you are. Um, God, I pray that you would stir our hearts. I pray that you would uh, work in us to to just mitigate all of the um, all of the distractions, all of the hurts, all of the things that that keep us from setting our eyes on you. You give us hearts that are that are receptive, that are ready, that are open to be transformed. Um, Lord, I just thank you that every time we open up your word, that your word has power. And God, I pray that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine with this time that we have to share together. Amen. All right, so this morning, uh, it's the Christmas story. So we're just talking about the comfort and joy, to use the words um, of a classic Christmas hymn that, that we have around the season. So um, I want to start by just talking about comfort. And I want you to think about what are the things that make you comfortable. Um, you don't have to be super spiritual to start. This is um, holiday season, downtime season. Um, you know, you can just, just general comforting things. Um, we're not a call and response kind of thing. I'm trying to get you there. If you guys want to shout something out, you can. Oh, no, no like something that comforts you. But yeah, yeah, that's the start. That's the start. I mean, anything I can get from you guys, anything, like a nod. Um, yeah, that's, that's good too. All right, so, so maybe when bring up the word comfort, the first thing that might come to mind is comfort food, right? So like uh, mashed potatoes and gravy and, you know, this time of year you got the, the Christmas cookies with lots of frosting and sprinkles. Um, there's a little bit of a de- debate within our house because um, my wife prefers Christmas cookies that maintain their shape. So you like cut them out and, you know, if it, if it was a snowflake, it still looks like a snowflake. If it was, you know, Santa Claus, it still looks like Santa Claus. Whereas the recipe that my mom has... It's like my favorite cookie in the world, but it just kind of like slides. So, you know, whatever it started out as, you know, a snow, uh, a snowflake might be a snowball, might be Santa, might be a reindeer, doesn't matter. It's just kind of a circle. And, but I love them. And so there's this, you know, how do we, how do I get my comfort cookie? I, I don't know. It's, it's a struggle so far. Um, when I think about comfortable, I think about, um, flannel PJ bottoms that just happen to match um, my Cubs hoodie, and and then I used to have a blankie that matched that, but the thing about that blankie was that um, it was like a normal size blankie, and I wanted a super-sized blankie, uh, so I don't know, a few years later, um, unbeknownst to me, I'm not sure where she snuck in all this crochet time, Jess made me this uh, this this blankie that's gargantuan, and whenever I can get Chloe to not steal it from me, um, you know, it's it's just a very a very comforting thing. So there's, you know, chestnuts roasting by an open fire, whatever you've got. There's, there's lots of things this time of year that, that we might go to for comfort and where we might find comfort, and they're good. Um, but my prayer for all of us is that this holiday season and in every season, our greatest comfort and our greatest joy would be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? In this baby born in a manger who, who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, and rose again. So that's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about Christmas, comfort, and joy. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, so let's dive in. Luke 2, verse 1. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. The first thing I want us to see is comfort in God's power. And the reason I say this is because like some 700 years before this story takes place, there's this, there's this prophet named Micah. And um, he's, he's one of the Old Testament prophets, one of what's called the minor prophets, which just means his book is a little bit short. And it means that, you know, if you're a modern Christian, you know, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, but either way, you're not sure exactly, you know, where he is in the story. Okay, but some 700 years before this story takes place, God speaks through Micah, and among so many other things, he declares and he promises that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, and, and Jesus is that Messiah, this long-awaited king in the line of King David, whom God has, has um, set apart to make things right, to, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, to fix what is broken in the world. Okay, so Jesus is coming, and God has promised Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. But as, as we get into the story, and the story's developing, and, and Mary is increasingly pregnant, Mary and Joseph are not in Bethlehem. They're in Nazareth. They're like hours and hours north of Bethlehem. They're, they're not where they're supposed to be for God's word to come true. So what does God do? He puts it in the heart of, of Caesar, of, of the, the head of the entire Roman Empire, the most, the, visibly the, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He puts it in his head and in his heart, hey, I just feel like it's time to count all of my people and figure out how many people I have. What he's going to do with that information, I don't know, probably tax people. But he says, okay, i got to count them, and I don't want to know where people go, so I'm going to command that everyone return to their ancestral home and get counted. And this is the mechanism that God uses to fulfill his prophecy, to get this, um, this poor peasant couple, Mary and Joseph and their unborn baby, to the place that they need to be at the time that they need to be there. And, you know, maybe that's exciting to you. Maybe that's like, oh, I don't know, maybe you're looking for something better than that. But to me, it's just a beautiful comfort to see the power of God. That how he intervenes in history, how... Um, he can accomplish his purposes any way he wants. And like, we make much in the church of, of God's ability to raise the dead and, and his ability to, to cause a baby to be born of a virgin. But in our everyday lives, we struggle to believe that God can move. We struggle to believe that God is good, that he is powerful, that he'll protect us, that he'll care for us, that, that he is meticulously involved in our lives. And so I love to see in stories like this, hey, not only can God move, like God, God will move. And God, God moves in outlandish, unexpected ways to accomplish his purposes in the world. Amen? So the first comfort is in God's power. The second comfort is in God's plan. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the inn. We might think that a God who, who moves in the heart of Caesar in order to get this couple where he wants them in the moment he wants them, that he also might move in somebody's heart to provide lodging. You know, like, like if he can stir in the heart of Caesar to up in the entire world and, and move everyone everywhere to wherever they need to be, you know, wouldn't you think that he could like um, pick some wealthy couple and just like kind of stir their heart? Hey, when you see when you see this, this these teenagers walking by and she looks really pregnant, be kind and welcome them in. You know, it, it seems like that would be a natural thing for God to do, and yet that is not what God does. He didn't do it. Um, God could have seen to it that that his one and only son was born into a really wealthy family. You know, where, where all, of the, all of the needs were met and then some, you know. Could have made sure that there was a PlayStation under the tree, you know, whatever. But he didn't. No news on whether you're getting a PlayStation, by the way. I got no idea. Um, one of the beautiful things about the Christmas story and about God's plan is that in the life of Jesus and in the, in the lives of every Christian, God is continually weaving hardship. The things that we wouldn't want, the things that we wouldn't expect, the things that we don't know what to do with. And there's such a temptation when life is hard, and sometimes life is hard. Sometimes the Christian life is hard. And in those moments, there's such a temptation to believe that God is absent, or God is aloof, or God is angry. You know, to kind of look back at the survey of of your last few weeks and say, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, and now God's out to get me, and, and that's why I didn't get the job, or that's why the car broke down, or that's why I'm having conflict in my marriage, or that's, 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 that's why cancer, or that's why whatever. And there's, again, this temptation to believe that God is absent, or God is aloof, or God is angry, but maybe, just maybe, God is inviting hard things into our lives for his glory and for our good. You know, you, you look at the story of the baby in the manger, the baby, the, this young family with no place to stay, and then you follow the story of Jesus all the way to the cross. And there is suffering, and there is hardship, and there's, there's a plan that we never would have written that is, seems so much harder than the kind of plans that we would write. And again, I think God does this among other things so that, so that when hardship comes into our own lives, we're like, oh, maybe God doesn't hate me. Maybe God isn't against me. Maybe God might use this hard thing in my life for his glory in the same way that he, that he used the hardship in the life of my Savior for his glory and for our good. One of the crazy things about the Christian life that I just see again and again is how God allows his people to suffer in order that they might be a comfort to someone else. You know, I was, I was hanging out with some, um, some other pastors in Acts 29, this church planning gathering that we're about, and it was, it was this crazy thing. Um, a group, I think there were eight pastors there that spent a couple of days together, and it was crazy to see overlaps in the stories. Like, at so many points it seemed like, okay, there's like two of us that like understand this one thing or have experienced this one thing or have suffered in this way or have struggled in this way. And like there's another six guys in the room who are a little bit oblivious to that. And yet, you know, the, the two that have suffered in a similar way, wow, is there a comfort. Um, one of the guys recently, um, he, he texted me last night asking for prayer because he recently had a suicide in his family. And I think this is his first Christmas 
after that. And it's just got him completely jacked up. You know, he's just, he's hurting. And, um, you know, he's, he, he texted me, he's like, I, people around me, they can see that I'm messed up. People are commenting, man, what's your headspace? What's going on with you? And I don't care. I don't want to talk to them. I don't care about them. I want my brother. You know, it's just dominating his life in an incredibly painful way. But what a beautiful thing that that when he walked in and he shares this story, um, that there's another guy in the room who had been through the same thing, and it, it had been about five years before, and he's like, yeah, I'm still struggling. Christmas is terrible for me. I'm grumpy. My wife's grumpy. We're trying to hold it together for the kids. But I get it. And that's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful how when we suffer, it, it opens up our hearts to comfort someone else in the midst of their suffering with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Um, we, are, we are not name it, claim it. We are not um, these, these people who believe that, that if God is good, then, then everything in our lives will be easy. Our, our God is not spoiling us by giving us everything that we ever dreamed of and everything that we ever wanted. Our God is training us. And our God is, is using our suffering to conform us to the image of his son. He's creating us and recreating us. He's, he's training us um, to trust him and to depend on him. To be the people who have a shocking resilience because we've learned again and again, often the hard way, that our God is good and our God is powerful and our God has a plan. And he's going to work that plan for his glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us. Amen? And we see it here again. Next, I want us to find comfort in knowing that the birth of Jesus is the end of our fear. Verse 8. There are shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. One more time, zooming in on verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Do not be afraid. Stop being terrified. It's a curious thing that in Scripture, whenever someone steps into the presence of God, or even into the presence of one of God's messengers, the the first response is always absolute terror. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So we've got these faithful, godly men, afraid of their God. Even though God is sending them good news of great joy, God's people are terrified. God has sent this messenger of hope and joy and salvation, 
But they respond as though God has sent the angel of death and that his, you know, his wings are unfurled and he's got a bloody sword or something. That's, that's, that's the way they respond. And it's, it's confusing. It's odd. And, you know, we could say, well, I mean, they're, they're cowards. But shepherds were not known for their cowardice. Luke and I, we were visiting my mom recently. I guess Chloe was there too. But Luke and I, we were outside doing a little project for her after dark. She had some, some light that was broken. And so we're out there in the dark, um, you know, with our flashlights and our tools trying to take this thing apart and fix it and whatnot. And Luke's like, it's creepy out here. I'm like, what, are you afraid of the dark? He's like, I don't get a lot of occasions to be in a place that's this dark because mom lives at the intersection of two dirt roads in a ditch. And if it isn't like a pickup headlight or like a barnyard light or, you know, there, there are no other lights. It's just dark, dark, dark. And I'm like, why are you afraid here? I mean, there's like no people here. There's no one, there's, there's no one to even do anything bad here. And he's like, yeah, what about the animals? And I'm like, what about the animals? There's like a raccoon, you know? He's afraid of you, you know? Um, we, we, are, we are a people who, because we have light all the time in our phone or whatever, you know, we're afraid of the dark. Um, these shepherds, they weren't afraid of the dark. They worked at night. And their job was that if a wild animal came during the night, and it, it probably wasn't like a raccoon or um, an overfattened squirrel or whatever we have in our community, you know, maybe it's a bear, maybe, maybe it's a lion, maybe it's a leopard, that sort of thing. But if an animal came in the, in the night to attack their flock, what do they do? They're the guy who stands in the gap with nothing but a stick, and they fend off that animal. These were brave men, Okay? And yet the angels come with nothing but good news, and they are terrified. Their knees are knocking. Their knees are buckling. They don't know what to do with themselves. Um, They're probably wetting their pants, okay? They shrink back in terror, and this is a scene that we see in Scripture again and again and again. From the moment that sin entered the world. Before the fall, Adam and Eve, they had no concept of fear. You know, they, they, they stood in the presence of God. They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And they had no fear. They had no terror. Life was good. But when sin entered the world and they saw that they were sinful and they felt their shame and they could, they could all of a sudden see the difference between them and their God, that they are sinful, they are wicked, and God is holy, they were terrified. And they ran and they hid. And we could go through story after story of Scripture. You can go to Isaiah where he gets this vision, vision of God, this, this dream, this vision. God isn't even physically there, but, but, but he catches a glimpse of God and he starts calling down curses on himself. Woe to me, for I'm undone. Woe to me, God's judgment upon me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I, I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King. Throughout Scripture, the response that, that people have to seeing God or being in the presence of God or, or even catching a glimpse of someone who has been in the presence of God, it is always absolute terror. Sin has made miserable cowards of us all. And fear is just this natural thing that we experience in a fallen world. And frankly, the more guilt we have, probably the more fearful we are. You know, if, if there's this fear of being found out, you know, we, we've, we've told some little lie, but, but maybe we're going to get caught in the lie. Or, 
um, there's, there's this fear when we have some ache or some illness that maybe it's, maybe it's a sign of God's judgment or you know, a fear of dying and standing in the presence of a holy God. Fear is a natural thing in a fallen world. But for those who are in Christ, the birth of Jesus is the end of our fear. Uh, the writer of Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, since the children, and by that he means you and me, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He says the natural condition of humanity in a fallen world is a slavish fear of death. But Jesus came so that those who all their lives were held by the fear of death might be free from it. It's no surprise that the shepherds were scared. Everyone is scared in the presence of God. You and I would be too. And yet the angel said, do not be afraid. As though the time for fear has passed. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he was this great um, 1800s preacher. He summarized it this way. He said, the angel said, fear not. As though the times of fear were over. And the days of hope and joy had arrived. Fear not. These words were not meant for those trembling shepherds only, but were intended for you and for me. Yea, for all nations to whom the glad tidings shall come. Fear not. Let God no longer be the object of your slavish dread. Stand not at a distance from him anymore. The word became flesh. God has descended to dwell among men that there may be no hedge of fire, no yawning gulf between God and man. To which we say amen. The birth of Jesus is the end of our fear. Next we see God's peace, which leads both to comfort and to joy. Verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest! And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So suddenly the the, the whole scene erupts in worship in this proclamation of God's peace. But who is God's peace for? Hear the verse again, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Peace to all people on whom God's favor rests. How do we get God's favor? We receive God's favor only by grace through faith. This is the altar call of this, of this passage. This is the invitation to trust in God. He's, he's heralding the coming of the Messiah. The, the one who has come to seek and to save that, that which was lost. The one who has come to restore. The one who has come to proclaim peace. But it's not peace for everyone. Jesus says, I've come, I, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. There's going to be division. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be judgment. But if you'll come under my protection, if you'll, if you'll come into my kingdom, if you will trust me, if you will hope in me, then I will give you peace and I will give you rest. Amen? Amen. See, this guy's got it. Front row. 
Last night I was thinking about um, one of my favorite Christmas hymns. God, rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, O tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. God's peace brings comfort. God's God's peace brings joy, and that's what we celebrate today. Finally, we also recognize that this good news, these glad tidings of comfort and joy, by their very nature, they were made to be shared. And so our story closes with the shepherd's example and our invitation to share our comfort and joy. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that have happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what these lowly shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This morning as we go out, may we have hearts that have been comforted. May we have hearts that have been filled with joy. May we recognize the great gift that we've been given. And may we, like the shepherds, be those who want to spread that joy. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your provision. We thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Um, God, we thank you that you are a God who, who trains us and who conforms us to the image of your Son. Um, who has the power to relieve all of our suffering and yet a plan that is too wise to always do so. God, may we be the people who trust you. May we be the people who hope in you. May we be the people who find our comfort and our joy most in you. And may that comfort and joy overflow from our lives into the lives of those around us. Amen.